Hello, everyone, and welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore the winding and sometimes treacherous paths that make up Delmarva. If you're new here, welcome, and if you're a returning listener, welcome back. If you've not listened to part one of this episode of the murders of Larry and Laura Kajawa, then it is highly important that you do go back and listen to part one to kind of just recap very briefly what we reviewed in the first episode is that in 1994, at the end of March, Lisa Friedel, who was Laura's daughter, Larry's stepdaughter, was accused of killing them both by shooting them twice each. She was found in a resort town named Ocean City, staying at a hotel, and she was with four of her friends. She had used her mother's checkbook to buy groceries and had used the word party in the memo field of that check. She was questioned without a guardian or a legal representative. Her step-grandmother gave permission for her to be questioned without an adult, yet her father lived in the area and they did not get his permission to speak with her. And even when she made her first appearance before a judge, she did not have an attorney representing her. So there are some things probably that would be handled differently today, I would think. But those were the circumstances in which you know, this case takes place and which will affect you know, the outcome and the results. This was made all the more personal for me, though, as my mom had babysat Lisa when we were very young. I was probably around six or seven when Laura and Larry got married um, because Lisa's parents were divorced. Lisa was about a year younger than I was, so you know it's, it had been quite a long time when this occurred as Lisa was 16 at the time of these events, so quite quite a while back. And when my mother told me what had happened, I really didn't want to hear anything more about it. I just kind of blocked everything out and as I was also just getting ready to attend college within the next few months, it just made it easier to do so as there would not be the instant access to news stories, you know, in different parts of the country as we have now, as I was going to college in New York. So, you know, I, I would be away from the story and I wouldn't hear anything more about what was going on. And if my mother started to mention it, I just, again, just kind of blocked everything out. So we'll kind of pick up where we left off in the last episode. I had stopped off just about where um, there was discussion about how Lisa was expected to continue her studies as she was still in high school and whether it was through um, her actual school district somehow providing support or for her to go to a facility in a different county but a facility that did work with youth to try to further her high school education at that point. 
There was also um, talk about her being evaluated by a psychiatrist um, from her defense attorney, um, because just to recap, she did have a defense attorney from Caroline County, but as there was only one full-time defense attorney from the public defender's office um, in Caroline County, he had some assistance from attorneys from Montgomery County, um, which was a probably a county that had more um, murders or violent crime. I'm not saying it was a huge amount, but still they had more experience in things like this. And so having Lisa evaluated by the psychiatrist may actually delay the trial by a bit of time. And looking at reasons why um, she may see a psychiatrist is at, you know, during her confession, she was saying that, you know, something just came over her to go and kill her mother and stepfather. And to reiterate another point, though, she had actually, um, actually gathered the gun or collected it the night before from underneath their bed because it was kept in a gun box underneath the bed. And she took it to her room. And this was the night before, as well as some of the other kids that rode the same bus with her had heard her discussing this with other people that she had planned on killing her parents. But there was some dispute as to some allegations that she made that she was being abused. Most of her school friends did say they saw unexplained bruises, while people that she worked with said that they did not. So this is just kind of the, the brief recap where we left off and some important pieces. Before I do begin with the actual, I guess you'd say, um, core of the upcoming episode, I do just want to give a disclaimer that I am in no way a legal or forensics expert. I am just providing information that I found in publicly available sources. In this case, newspapers.com was my primary source using two different newspapers, the Star Democrat from Easton, Maryland, and the Baltimore Sun. Um, just to make it clear, just because the paper is named the Star Democrat, that's not the affiliation. It's just a reflection of the democracy. So I just wanted to make that you know, clear as you know, there could be some idea that the paper could lean towards either Democrat or Republican. This does not have any political affiliation, just reporting stories, you know, and being a journalistic resource. Okay, this is me cutting in after I've recorded the episode. Um, I have actually gone back in and deleted some sections and gone back and re-recorded because I did realize I was kind of skewing either one way or the other too much. I, I do like to keep the actual facts as impartial as I can, but I realized when I did start covering this that there would probably be times where um, even I would realize my emotions were kind of conflicting in understanding that the act, the crime of the murder was 100% wrong, but it's hard to separate that sometimes when you knew the person who committed the murders as a child. Um, while 
you know, reviewing some of the things that you'll hear me go over in letters that she wrote to the judge, it at one moment would make me angry and upset and thinking, how could anybody be so out of touch with what they've done? But then on the other hand, you know, in a few seconds later, I would start to think, well, this just kind of goes to show that she doesn't really understand the consequences of her actions. So I felt that a lot when I was both writing notes um, regarding the research as I was also, you know, going in to record things because I, I do have a script, so to speak, but it's not like 100% what I'm going to say. I have like the important points um, some of my feelings or thoughts about it, but then I expand on those um, just as I would during a conversation. So when I'm going through some parts, you know, I may either go off track for a little bit. The parts that I re-recorded, I had definitely kind of gone off track for quite a bit. So, um, you know, I just hope everybody does understand why even when explaining my thoughts on the issue, which, you know, when I do get to those points when I'm reviewing a case or an incident, then I do let my opinion show. But in this episode, it may seem, and it probably is, that I'm swaying back and forth a little bit because there's such this, this dichotomy in a way in my mind of how I'm looking at this. So um, I just wanted to come back in and interject after you know I've gone through and listened to it. And I understand that, um, that it does show me kind of going back and forth sometimes with my thoughts because I'm actually feeling both things. So if that seems inconsistent, you know, I apologize, but I just wanted to, to kind of break in before we got into the actual main part of the case um, to explain that and that I do recognize it and I apologize but I think after re recording I've done about the best I can in that um, all right we will now move on with the other parts of the episode thanks again so in the last episode we had also discussed John Phelps um, this was a young man who rode the same bus as Lisa, and though he was not identified as her boyfriend, I'm just going to say it's my opinion since, you know, I don't have any proof, but based on some of the actions that he did, some of the wording that was used, it sounds like if he was not her boyfriend, then he was at least a very close um, friend of hers. So he had at one point suggested to Lisa as she was um, explaining some of her plans that she not commit the murder herself, but rather use a hitman. So, you know, here's a 16 year old suggesting someone use a hitman to kill their parents. Um, he also had previously um, two years prior to this admitted to a series of burglaries. And then two months after those burglaries or that he confessed to those burglaries, he stole a display set of knives. So, you know, he was kind of fast-tracking himself to be part of the, the legal justice system in his state, but not in the best way possible. 
once Lisa had killed her mother and stepfather, she actually gave him the gun and he filed the number off. He had originally been charged with a comp or with accessory after the fact, but once it was learned that he had suggested a hitman, he was charged with accessory before the fact. Um, given his track record, it was assumed that he would be tried as an adult, and that was the original intent. However, he was later, it was later changed to him being charged as a juvenile. Um, and given the remarks of the presiding judge, that was more than a little surprising um, because the judge didn't hold back in, you know, how he felt about the track that this young man was taking. But yes, the charges were downgraded from being charged as an adult to a juvenile, as well as the accessory before the fact was dismissed as it was just an opinion that, well, he just gave an opinion. He didn't actually, you know, plan it or do anything in regards to the actual murders themselves. Lisa's attorneys did seek a change of venue. Even though Delmarva encompasses all of Delaware and parts of two other states, we can be pretty small. Um, you know, even the fact that a lot of the big stories from Delaware are covered um, a lot of times more by either the Baltimore press or Philadelphia. You know, we are kind of a smaller area. And at least at this time, you know, this would have been a huge story. And I think anytime someone kills their parents, it usually is a big story. But definitely in Delmarva, we can understand how it would be difficult to have what her defense would consider a fair trial. Um, even though Larry, Laura, and Lisa all lived in Maryland, both Laura and Larry had worked in Seaford, Delaware for about 28 years at least, with Larry serving in both the Delaware and Maryland National Guards at different points. So the, even in a different state, they had ties to you know, the Seaford community, which is where I'm from. Now, they had been discussing or trying to get a reduction of bail um, for Lisa and some of the things that she wanted to do was finish high school, go to college, get a job. Um, you know, all those things that people who have recently killed their parents ask for. Um, she did actually have two step aunts. These were her stepmother's sisters. So this was her father's wife's sisters who were willing to try to put up the money but they didn't have that much. Um, nowhere near as much as we'll find out a little bit later. But they were willing to you know, go to bat for her. And so the defense was trying to get it lowered so possibly um, the ants could put up the money as well as to make Lisa more comfortable about um, seeing other doctors. We had mentioned or I had mentioned the possible psychiatric evaluations. And so... The defense thought it would be easier to schedule these appointments with Lisa not being in jail. Um, otherwise, it would be difficult for Lisa to feel comfortable while discussing things with her doctor 
as well as she had had some physical um, illnesses, you know, while she was in jail and had actually been taken to the hospital. So these were all pros in terms of the defense trying to get Lisa a reduced bond. However, Judge Owen Wise wasn't quite on board with all of this. Um, for one thing, you know, she had been accused of a very violent crime. So this definitely has to be taken into account as to whether or not, you know, she is going to be interacting with the public on a regular basis. And not only how comfortable she is, but both the comfort level of the community and for the community to both feel and be safe. Um, so looking again in terms of going to high school to finish that out, going to college and getting a job, all of those entities, the employers and the schools, probably, I would say, probably wouldn't be really on board with hiring her. But in terms of seeing different doctors, I can definitely see why it would be easier. However, as Lisa had been in another town and in a different county, even when she was apprehended, the judge was concerned about her being a flight risk. The judge was concerned about safety and thought that if she was just in the presence of a doctor, that could give more, um, more opportunity for her to try to escape if there was no one there to guard her. So there was a lot of back and forth with that, but ultimately the bond was not reduced. Um, and if she did ever have to travel to a doctor's office and you know the doctor couldn't say meet at the jail, then she would need to be in the doctor's office with handcuffs. This is what Judge Wise said um, regarding the issue. He said, quote, you're not entitled to any bond. You're accused of killing two people, whether you're under 18 or not, end quote. He also did go on to make a comparison that if Laura or Larry had been accused of killing Lisa, they would have had at least the $500,000 bond, if any bond at all. Um, he also, again, did refer back to going to Ocean City after the murders. Um, so it was denied. Also, the request was made to go down from $500,000 to $5,000, which is pretty laughable for two murders, whether you consider them first degree, second degree, from 500000 to 5000 is, in the terms of actually the state's attorney, Chris Jensen, ludicrous. He did actually call it ludicrous, and I have to agree on that point. Um, I said before, I'm trying to stay as partial as possible, but my feelings are really quite conflicted here. I think of Lisa still as the little girl that I used to play with. Even though I'm now an adult, I do not want to mention my age, but I am an adult. So I still see her, though, as a child. I mean, at the time I was a child, too. But even looking at her pictures in the newspapers, I still see that resemblance. I see the face. And she still reminds me of the little girl that I played with.
So, yes, I know that a $5,000 bond on murder is ludicrous, but I'm actually conflicted because I feel bad in some ways because I want her to be able to participate in her own defense, but putting the, you know, flight risk and risk to the community, kind of weighing that against, um, you know, her being out and being more comfortable amongst her doctors, I have to err on the side of safety and definitely understand why the judge did not reduce her bond, especially by such an amount, because at $5,000, there's really no incentive for her to try to stay in the area if there was ever an opportunity for her to try to leave. I did find it pretty telling that her step aunts were willing to you know, kind of step up and try to support her, even though they didn't have, you know, the money to, you know, make that bond that they were willing to stand by her, no matter what, with one of the step aunts saying that even though she had a child in the house, she would not feel unsafe with Lisa being there. And I'm kind of paraphrasing it, but, you know, the step aunts really had her back. The next thing that came up was really pretty surprising to me. And it was something that would have had to go to civil court as, w as well, depending on, you know, what exactly needed to be done. Also something called orphan's court. And this was regarding the estate of Larry and Laura. And the case was to prohibit Larry's mother from basically doing anything within the house. The defense was asking that Larry's mother, Anna, um, be barred from entering the house and not to remove or destroy anything. When Anna was asked about this, she you know, said that they had gotten rid of some perishables. So, you know, you have things in the fridge. They have gone bad. Of course, they want to try to get them out once they're allowed back in the house, as well as she took um, some pictures that um, Lisa's sisters, um, Laura's other daughters that were older, would have wanted. So, you know, th there wasn't anything huge that had been taken from the house. Now, why the defense is just bringing this up was, you know, kind of strange even though it's not like the police would hold the, the house for days and days and days um, to, you know, infinity, at some point it had to be released. Once Lisa, you know, did get the defense attorney, if they had, you know, any, you know, inquiries as far as, you know, what might be in the house, would there be something that they would consider exculpatory that the prosecution wouldn't necessarily know it was? That was not done in really a timely manner. We were talking, getting to a point where the house was going up for auction. And I know that money is a big motivator. And, you know, some people, when they look at cases like this, and whether it's discussion of life insurance, about the estate, anything like that, it's not necessarily someone just wanting to get their hands on money. It could be what's needed to you know, fulfill the obligations of the estate. So first off, 
there's burial. Now, knowing the jobs that Lisa, I'm sorry, that Laura and Larry had, they were very good jobs at the time. And I don't know if they would have had life insurance through the jobs, but if not, you know, proceeds from the estate may have had to be pledged to cover burial costs, or there may be costs that were still needing to be paid before whatever services were completed. One thing that surprises me in a lot of true crime shows, you'll hear that something that made police or someone else suspect a spouse especially, but sometimes also children, is that a call was made to discuss the life insurance within a couple of days of the murder, sometimes even the day after. However, depending on you know what everything is structured like, you may need to use that life insurance to cover the final costs. When a family member of mine passed away, and they reached out to me to just kind of get some initial contact. And when we could come in and meet, you know, we had to try to get the, um, the life insurance certificates and the policy numbers because he would need to check on them to see what was available to cover the final expenses. So it's not really surprising to me or necessarily an indicator of um, guilt if someone does look into finances after a sudden death. It's just something that has to be done. But there was, there could have been some conflict, I guess you would say, because Lisa was listed as the sole beneficiaries of Laura and Larry's estate. Now, yes, I have mentioned older daughters, but I at first too was thinking, why wasn't anything left for them individually? But they were older, they were over 18, whereas if something happened when Lisa was under 18, then they may have been just trying to make sure that you know she had resources that she could use at that time. And we don't know, maybe things would have changed if you know they had lived to Lisa becoming an adult or finishing her schooling. But this was actually a big problem part of the defense is they wanted to get into that house. Um, the judge itself did himself, he did think it was kind of a quote fishing expedition, which I did too. Um, but he did finally set some parameters that they had eight hours within the house. There were to be people observing them. The state's attorney had the opportunity to send someone there to observe as well. There could be things that were considered privileged, um, you know, such as family things that the remaining family didn't necessarily want to be seen or viewed by others, including, you know, pictures or home movies, um, things like that. The defense did say those were some of the things they wanted to look at were, you know, photographs, I'm sorry, photographs and videotapes, um, possibly some paperwork. And the judge, to make sure that there were no things that could be appealed, or at least this would not be something that could be appealed, he did go ahead and set forth those concessions. Um, however, he once again did you know, kind of make his um, feelings known on it. 
um, asking, you know, why this was being brought up later rather than earlier um, to give you some quotes about, you know, how he kind of felt about this. He said, quote, who does the sheriff serve the subpoena, subpoena on if the property is no longer there? You seem to want me to rearrange the world and put things back to where they were, and that's not going to happen. It was a crime scene, and now it's in a state. It wouldn't be fair for me to say you've done nothing, but you haven't acted with great haste, end quote. So this is where he was saying that it took the defense quite a long time to you know, come to this point that they may have been working on other things, but it took them quite a bit of time to get here. Going back to the bond issue, um, and at points when we see Judge Wise um, make some statements, it does seem like he is getting a little tired of things. And Lisa wrote him a letter to discuss some of the reasons why she thought that the bond should be reduced. The wording of the letter was printed in a newspaper and it was printed as was, um, meaning that there were some spelling and grammar errors, which may actually go to prove the point that she may have needed more schooling, you know, kind of emphasizing the fact that she was still in high school. And here's part of the letter. Quote, if I were to get out, it would be much easier for me to go to places I need to go in preparation to my trial. It would be more comfortable to speak with my lawyers if I were in the custody of my aunt. I would feel more comfortable. So that was one part of the letter. Um, she goes on to later say as well that jail is very uncomfortable. I know jails aren't supposed to be any hotels, but I believe you understand why what I'm trying to say. I hope for you to understand my situation. I'm not a bad person. People are claiming me to be. I'm not some crazy, heartless person. I've just been scared for my life, all of my 16 years of living. I know that I'm about to go through a lot right now. I need my family more than anything. It's hard for me not being able to have my family to lean on in times of sorrow. End quote. She also did indicate that she would do anything in order to earn the judge's trusts. So one statement that stuck out to me there was she had been scared for her life for all of her 16 years. If that is true, then I'm really sorry that she didn't feel that she could reach out to anybody that was an adult or in a position where they could help her more other than her own schoolmates. I wish, you know, that she could have felt comfortable reaching out to my mother or father or, you know, maybe even one of my older siblings um, because there was a pretty good age difference between myself and my older siblings that maybe, you know, reaching out to someone else that was older but not necessarily say an adult just anything if she was in that situation I am sorry that she didn't feel that she had anyone that she could reach out to if she was truly scared and if she was truly being abused but all we have are the allegations and conflicting reports on that even though Larry's 
mother did indicate some things such as Laura pulling Lisa's hair and, you know, verbally with Larry telling his mother that Lisa was too dumb to realize they were watching her like a hawk. Though at that time, maybe it wasn't viewed as abuse, but I would. You know, it's not something any child wants. No, pulling someone's hair is not going to to leave some huge physical scar. But when pain is used as a punishment, even if it's slight, you know, that's that has a very thin line from there being punishment to being abuse. So, you know, there is some co conflicting stories there. And on the one hand, no allegation of abuse should ever be left uninvestigated and if found to be true, unpunished. However, Larry and Laura were not there to give their sides of the story or to whether or say yes, they had or no, they hadn't. So we'll never really get the full story that we can be 100% um, in feeling that it was accurate. Going back to the concerns about money and the estate, um, there, there was still the discussion about whether Lisa would inherit. Um, there's something called the Slayer's Law, basically meaning that one cannot profit from their crime. So... You know, if something wasn't resolved, it would have to go to what's called an orphan's court. But eventually, Lisa did actually sign away her rights to inherit. Now, there are some other aspects of this case that was happening before, you know, it was concluded. Because there would be some allusions or even some articles written specifically about this, you may see some mention if you do go through the resources that I'm listing um, that really don't impact the case. It happened all after um, Laura and Larry were killed. So it's not you know, really relevant to the case itself. However, it does make you question how the actual jails and juvenile detention centers are run when there are employees such as the man listed in this specific topic, you know, working there. So you may be able to figure out what I'm or what happened by what I'm saying and leaving unsaid. Just to put it out there, there are some other aspects that are covered in articles, but it does not actually hold any weight against whether or not Lisa would have been considered guilty or innocent. Now, I have mentioned a few times um, about Lisa being questioned without an adult or an attorney and questions about the admissibility of that, and that does come up, and I really think that if it was not brought up at any point during the trial, that would mean the defense was not doing their job. Um, Lisa did state that she felt that... Um, Officer Bollinger could help her because he did say so, even though when he was questioned, he said that, you know, after Lisa asked how he could help, he said he needed the truth. 
Um, again, just kind of paraphrasing, but he never really got specific in how he could help her. But she thought that if she told the truth and told him what he wanted to hear, that he could help make things better. Um, so when she did actually appear before the judge for the first time, that was the first time she was actually hearing the severity of the charges. So she was, in her words, shocked. The statement that was being referred to that Lisa gave um, said this. She said, quote, you want me to say I did it? I shot them. Oh, my God, I shot them. I killed my parents. Why did I do it? I love them. They mean everything to me, and I killed them. Oh, my God, end quote. So after you know this, she does go on to explain or say that she was laying in bed when something just came over her, and she went in, shot Larry twice. Um, she had missed the first shot. And so, you know, all in all, she shot each of them twice and missed for a total of two times. Her mother in the bed did pull up um, the covers over her head and just, you know, I, I believe I said this in the previous episode as well, that, you know, Larry may have known who it was that had shot him, but her mom may not have because she pulled the blanket up over her head. In March of 1995, as the prosecution was hoping to set a trial date, things were postponed when it was revealed that there had been, quote, allegations made, end quote, during some of the psychiatric evaluations. However, those allegations have never been printed or made public. So at that time, up until this point, it, they've not been made public or at least anything that I could find. By the time I came to the last article that mentioned it, you know, it had not released anything about what those allegations may have been. We also do have to remember that some things are still privileged, even though it is a court case. There, you know, is the, um, the attorney-client privilege and even ex an expectation of privacy with some of the doctors that she saw unless she and the defense did make that public or the prosecutors were able to get a warrant to or a court order to get that information. And also being a juvenile, it is, you know, sometimes those records are sealed or are more d difficult to get to. And at that time in 1995, what some people described as the slowest moving case in Caroline County quickly and abruptly came to an end. Lisa Friedel pled guilty and was sentenced to 60 years in prison. So honestly, you know, at the time in those papers, it was described as slow moving, but compared to now, especially with COVID-19 delaying some things, I think the case ended pretty quickly and made it made its way through at least some pretrial motions. Um, but ultimately, Lisa did decide to plead guilty. Um, she pled guilty to two counts of second degree murder and one count of use of a handgun in a commission of a crime of violence. The charges that had been dropped as part of the plea were the first-degree murder charges, charges and the manslaughter charges 
along with one of the handgun in commission of a crime charges. Um, as the sentence was brought down, Lisa sat at the table with her head down. Um, the way the terms were set up is that they were two consecutive 30-year terms, but with a concurrent 20-year term for the handgun charge. So it was 30 years each for the murders and 20 years for the handgun charge, but that 20 would not run consecutively, meaning it wasn't a total of 80 years. That 20 would also still be served during some of those 30 years. However, Jensen, um, the state's attorney, did actually estimate, though, that she would serve probably at least 20 years, even though she would have been eligible for parole in 15 years. Um, Larry's family kind of supported the agreement, though Larry's mother did think she should have gotten more time. Um, his mother said, quote, the way she shot them and left them, she hadn't made and didn't know it. She was deceiving us, lying to us every day. She didn't care about anybody but herself, end quote. Um, a lot of people did ref reflect on this and say that they didn't feel that she showed any remorse. Judge Wise, before he sent her to prison, did ask her if, he wanted, if she wanted to visit the graves. And, you know, this is... This is difficult. Um, I mean, he may have been showing or trying to show some, some compassion, hoping that maybe she realized that her actions took away her parents forever and wanted to give her the opportunity to visit the grave before she went to prison, but she declined. In words and feelings that are reflected to this very day, Judge Wise, probably with more insight than he realized um, that he had, said this during the sentencing, quote, those of us who have gray hair wonder what the world is coming to. Suppose a teacher had given her a bad grade or a principal had suspended her from school. Would she have shot them too? I think the thing that disturbs me most of all is how could you leave your parents lying in bed while you were spending their money and going to Ocean City? That's heartless. It's cruel. There are calculated drug dealers who show some remorse or something you do not look in my eyes any different than a cold-blooded murderer. I think the same people here today would be calling for the death penalty if someone had broken into the home and and kill the Kujavas. Are we going to set a standard that murder in the family is okay? Why didn't you run away if the problems were so bad in that house? You don't have to be too smart to see that's an option. She's got all this family support. Where were they? I'm not blaming them, but why didn't she feel she could go to her family? End quote. You know, Judge Wise, in some ways, he's also kind of going back and forth. At times, he can be sensitive and right on point. And, you know, when he was trying to give her that compassionate, you know, act to go visit the graves, 
when he started out by saying, you know, you have to wonder what the world is coming to. But in the end, he actually, to me, ends up saying some things that I don't think were really right to say. To say she should just run away. No, she should feel like she have this that she had the support to go to somebody. We cannot go back in time and see exactly what was going on or why or if she didn't have that family support or if she did have it, why she felt that she didn't. But I think the why didn't she just run away is going a little bit too far. And also then to reiterate, um, you know, when Larry said that she was too dumb for the judge to say you don't have to be too smart to see that's an option also reiterates to me, you know, that she was kind of being bombarded sometimes with verbal abuse. You know, as I said, I've had some very conflicting emotions on this and conflicting feelings. In some ways, this case has helped me learn more about myself, look at why I look at cases the way I do. This was really the first time violence was set in front of me. And it kind of set the tone for the rest of my life in that I just shut myself off. My mom used to tell me that she thought I was emotionless. And I guess it was my coping mechanism, which probably wasn't the best, or I know it wasn't the best. And in some ways, I think it has made me more compassionate. But at the same time, I also want to be harder on criminals. Compared to the other people that I've known who were murdered, this is the case where I actually knew the murderer much, 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 much better than the victims. And I'm in such a close proximity to age and spending that time with her as children, it's it's just really tearing me to both sides. I do want to stay as impartial as I can, but it's hard when every time I think of this case, I don't see the 16-year-old young woman standing in front of a judge or with the police I see a little girl who for whatever reason for what we may never really understand killed her mother and stepfather and I don't know if my mind will ever really be able to reconcile that I think in reviewing this I understand sometimes why I I think I have a little more compassion to the younger perpetrators of crimes or those that may have you know tried to reach out for help and they didn't have it but when I look at other cases my thoughts just say put them in jail throw away the key they should never see the light of day and I I don't know why I have such extreme reactions from either empathy and understanding and knowing that there were mitigating circumstances to saying that a prisoner doesn't deserve any more chances. For the other people that I've known who've been murdered, that is my thought. 
It's they should not be let out of jail. They committed a cold-hearted crime. Now, in one of the cases, the the murderer actually killed himself. So, you know, that's kind of out of the equation. But for the other three, I I'm like, no, they they took a life before that life was meant to be taken. And they didn't have a right to take that life. And in one of the one of these, it was a baby who never even had a chance at life. So, you know, my feelings about those are jail for the rest of their life or prison for the rest of their life. But again, I just can't see someone that young spending the rest of their life in jail at 16 years old, which I think is why then the Supreme Court did step in with their rulings that I reviewed previously about what minors can be sentenced to because, you know, that could be 70 or 80 years in jail. And that life, the possibility of whatever good they could have accomplished in society is gone. So they've taken two lives in this case, and then their life has gone to waste if they don't get a second chance. It was considered that Lisa had a good chance at rehabilitation. So, you know, I did actually go in um, even previously before I started working on research to see where she was. So possibly I could send her a letter um, because I do think about her daily. You know, circumstances come up that we see every day in the news. And there are times where I do go back to this and I think about her but it is daily. And so I had gone in and just to try to see if she was still an inmate. I couldn't find her anything anywhere in the Maryland system. Um, I did look for her name just through Facebook and other sites, but just from the court records that I was able to see previously, I know there is a different Lisa Friedel. Um, so looking at the information on those sites or on Facebook, it didn't seem like it was the same person. After almost 30 years, you know, I finally decided to confront the first case of someone that I knew who was killed. And it, it wasn't easy. Um, where I said I think about her every day after starting looking at articles and reading through them I thought about her I don't know how many times a day and just thoughts keep coming in my mind could somebody have done something could somebody I know have done something but I think that's a position anybody who knows someone who's been murdered will always feel in the case of the man that I said he killed himself the murderer killed himself I sometimes still have nightmares about that because even though I know there was nothing that I could do that feeling just doesn't go away and before this, I I would say I thought about them 
first and most often every day. And it was kind of a cascading effect. I would think about them and then I would start thinking about everybody else um, that I've known who's been a victim of violent crime, who's died at the hands of another. And so even though logically, intellectually, I know that I, I was in no position to even know something was wrong. I was not in a position to stop anything. And in fact, nobody was. It was something that nobody would have ever expected. So I think it's a position, again, that anybody who's known anybody who's been killed, no matter what, there will always be that doubt that is there. And because I had blocked myself really off from, from this case, I literally knew there's just the basics. I knew what my mother told me that first day that Larry and Laura had been killed and it was Lisa who did it and that she did it to party. So I didn't ask mom where she had gotten the information, um, if someone had called her, if she had just seen it on the news. You know, I just kind of walked into the house and that was that. So in hindsight, as an adult, I wish I had confronted some of these things earlier. I wish I had discussed you know, some of my feelings and actually kept up on the case you know, maybe I could have been there to lend her support going through this at the time, um, you know, even by letters, uh, you know, and until that point, until that day, mom met me at the door and told me that I probably, you know, wouldn't even think of her, but maybe once a month and that's being generous, it probably was less unless something else came up. You know, I did pass by where her parents worked every day because of the location near my house. You know, so if anything, I might have thought about her while passing then. But frankly, I probably didn't do that that often. Um, I probably thought about her more, you know, immediately after my mom stopped babysitting her. Um, because... You know, I, I missed having someone to play with after school and all of a sudden she wasn't there, you know, and you know, maybe writing letters after, you know, after my mom stopped babysitting her, could we have kept in touch better? I am sure we could have because we didn't have contact really after then. So, you know, the most contact we had was if we, I ran into her sister, you know, when she was cutting hair, that was about it. But um, I know I've kind of been back and forth and rambling for the last couple of minutes. So I'll, I will redirect things back to the case. Um, but, you know, I, I'm hoping as I review more of these cases, whether it's the ones where I've known someone or even ones that are similar, that, you know, I'll learn 
more about the people behind both the crimes and those that were killed and maybe even find out some things about myself and how to cope myself with some of these things. Um, but, you know, the sad reality is there are so many people who are dealing with similar thoughts and emotions to differing degrees. I wasn't really close to this case. You know, I was nine or 10 years removed from seeing Lisa every day. And it still had an impact that I didn't want to really address. But every day we hear about children killing their parents, killing each other, killing other adults. Um, just while actually typing up some of my notes and I mean, I had two things pop up once during a previous day when I was researching about a young mother who just went to pick up her child from the babysitter and someone randomly shot her to rob her. And the person who did it was 16 years old. It wasn't in this area, but still 16 years old. And then in another case, Again, a pop-up of an article, a young boy accidentally killed his mother. It was not in any way intentional, but he had access to the weapon to do it. It was there. And while reviewing Lisa's actual case, I came across other cases of young people killing their parents or killing others while... You know, all of this was going on at the same time. Now, I think Lisa's case was more high profile because it was double murder. But also, I think at that time, society still looked at girls or women as, you know, those who couldn't commit violent crimes. So I do think also the fact that she was more on the front page than some of the others, that may explain it. But you know, I came across an article of, you know, someone who was an adolescent shooting at someone with a BB gun. But because of the age at that time, it didn't even seem like it was chargeable as an adult. I mean, he was so young, it was set before, you know, family or juvenile court. And within, say, a one to two year time frame prior or just after Lisa had killed her parents. There was another young man named Tony Mills Jr. He was 19 and he murdered a man or a young boy, I should actually say, um, David Oscar Padron. He was not even 16 years old. He was two days away from his 16th birthday. Um, another person named Ambrose Robinson he shot another young man that was 30 years old. And then another you know, man um, um, named Michael Fisher. He was actually a teen as well. Um, he killed his parents and his brother with a hammer. And then subsequently after that, a young man at, who was 15 named David McQuay was accused of killing his parents. And this is all within these last three um, were 
all within the same area. So we look at it now and we think that maybe it's becoming more prevalent now. I don't know. I think it was, you know, whether it was um, parasite or patricide, um, you know, a youth killing their parents or just violent crimes being committed by youth against anybody at all, it was still there in the 80s and 90s. It just wasn't able to be transmitted across the nation with a push of a button. Someone couldn't look at their phone and find out national news. So I think it was there, but nobody's learned from it. No one's, I don't think anyone's really tried. That's just my opinion. I think we just kind of push things along. It happens. We feel outrage about a certain crime for days, maybe even weeks, but we don't do anything to address the issues. We feel that outrage, and then all of a sudden it's gone, and we wait for another story to happen to feel outraged about again. And it just keeps happening. And we've seen that time and time again, whether it's crimes committed by youth, domestic violence, mass shootings, no matter what, they just seem like for a couple of weeks, we hear news reports, we see articles, but it's very, very hard to get legislation to pass to help prevent things from happening again. And I'm not trying to be political here because it's not even, um, in some cases, a matter of access to a gun. There's just violence being perpetrated. We need to find ways to get to the root cause of why these things are happening. Why are there such violent acts being committed every day? Is it an emotional need that's not being met? Is it frustration because a certain person or group isn't being treated fairly or equitably? Have those issues really ever been addressed or are we just going to continually keep pushing these crimes aside until the next one happens so the next political powerhouse can come along and try to push through a bill so that their name is known? And okay, so I actually have just stopped there. Um, I, I actually went on for about 20 minutes on, I guess you would call it a tirade about things that I need, think need to be done um, in order to get a better understanding of why these things happen, um, what I think we should be doing. I did get a little heated, so I did decide to come back and just kind of take you know, some of that out. But I do really think that though most people are not politically motivated when it comes to trying to find, you know, solutions or find ways to help people. Unfortunately, many, I'm not going to say all, but many of those who are in charge of enacting legislation, um, new law, um, any type of bill that needs to be passed, I do think, unfortunately, many of those are just after an agenda to get their name out. Yes, there are many who also believe in what they're doing and want to help, 
but there are still so many out there who are just after power, recognition, money, you name it. Again, just my opinion, and I'm not saying any names because I have to protect myself here, but we, we need to get past that. We need to get past people who are just trying to do things and put their name on something to get that recognition or that power. So as a community, I think we all need to recognize the strengths and limitations that we have and come together and try to address those. Every area will have different needs and, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Schools that are in a more um, rural area will have different needs than schools that are in, say, small cities compared to schools that are in big cities. And then also just location geographically, you'll have different needs there. So just each community needs to take a look at the needs of their students. Um, I don't think it should be up to a state to individually say which or what um, access different schools might have to different programs that you know, kind of are universal saying like every school has to do this, this, and this um, beyond curriculum requirements and rules, you know, of course, about safety and being inclusive, all of those need to remain. But when it comes to, say, having counselors on site, when it comes to having career paths and career counselors, as well as, you know, um, more of a social worker type um, counselor, you know, one school may have a need for one type of counselor or teacher, whereas another school has a different need. So I think those types of individual needs have to be looked at on an individual basis. So just to kind of clarify there, I'm not talking about overall curriculum and rules that I think as a society in a broader sense that we need to abide by, but as far as the individual needs of the students um, and what access they have, that is definitely going to be different from school to school. And that means getting people in positions at those schools to you know, bring a strong voice to what their school needs and to stand up for their school. Um, and that goes beyond just the principal or the superintendent of the district. It's everybody getting involved down to the parents, business owners. It's just showing support to the students to give, like to give students hope to let them know, hey, there are these programs out there, or these are the type of jobs that if you're interested in, we have a mentor who can help you. Just so many different things. And I think it gives hope to the students. If a student feels like they're stuck for any reason, there's something there to help bring them up and hopefully give them a path to succeed. Now, like I said, I did kind of go off on a tirade for a few moments regarding that um, and actually cut out probably 10 to 15 minutes of me repeating the same thing basically over and over. So um, in regards to this case personally, yeah, it, it took a while for me to get here and I do hope that 
I I did learn something about myself and, you know, about what the needs of younger people are, even though this happened 30 years ago almost. Some of the needs are still very, very similar um, as far as what support is needed. So, you know, I, again, hope I just learned something from that. And as I move forward through not only reviewing cases that have affected my life, but those overall, maybe I can learn to recognize, you know, different things. And I do hope one day that I can bring my voice to, you know, some issues that I think are very important. And, you know, maybe the longer I do this, the stronger my voice will get. I don't know. But, you know, that's the purpose behind doing these podcasts is to try to learn and try to help. If you have made it to this point, I really appreciate it because, you know, I know I was kind of back and forth all over the place on this because my feelings were so conflicted. Um, and it, it's, it's weird because of the fact that I know other cases that I've covered and how I was very, you know, again, put somebody in jail. Okay. They committed the crime. They need to stay in jail. Whereas with this, I wasn't quite as hard and fast sticking to that idea. And so that does give me insight as well to sometimes why people do seem to stand behind those um, those convicted or who's, those who have confessed to crimes. It's because no matter what I think, that person, whether it's a relative or a friend, still sees that person as they were the good that they had within themselves. And, you know, it just, and it gets to a point where they've done something like this, it's hard to separate the two. You might know or acknowledge what they've done, but 99% of you still gravitates toward the good in that person. So for parents, family, friends that, come forward and report when a loved one has done something illegal. You know, I, I really commend you because that has got to be the most difficult thing. So I'm going to end here um, because I'll probably end up, you know, again for another 20 or 30 minutes discussing things that are kind of off topic. Um, but I do appreciate everybody letting me tell this story. And, you know, hopefully we all learned a little bit about how people think. My next episode, um, I might look for something a little different, not necessarily true crime. Um, because, you know, I do look at different types of topics, but that way we can kind of get you know, get out of just hearing about crimes and murder, even though, unfortunately, a lot of the things I do cover end in tragedy. Um, you know, maybe just looking at something will kind of refresh us in a way where 
will have new eyes when looking at another crime or looking at the next event or case that I'll be going over. I haven't quite made up my mind on um, what to cover yet, but, you know, I have a few ideas. My contact information will be listed in the description of the episode. Um, I mentioned in the previous episode I am needing to use you know, more sites where I may need to either pay for a subscription or, you know, some cases I've tried to look up, but I have to order a copy of papers if I want, you know, to be able to see court documents. I think it just kind of depends on the state um, about how long the archives are kept in, you know, the, their main webpage or if it's archived. Um, so I do have a PayPal account if anybody did want to donate. Um, and if you have any ideas about um, any different cases, please, you know, contact me. Um, probably Facebook Messenger is the quickest way um, to get to me because that kind of pops up through my email. I, you know, I unfortunately get a lot of spam, even though I try to redirect it, it you know, it just still continually comes in. So sometimes it takes a little bit to sort through that. So Messenger, um, you know, or leaving a comment on a Facebook post is usually the quickest way. I appreciate everybody listening today, and I hope everybody has a good rest of your week, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.